Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good morning, everyone. This is Van Winkle. And this is Virginia. And we are here with... Newt Shuttlecotty. Jordan Cobb. Cassandra Teese. Casper Oliver. And you're listening to the Homestead on the Corner Writing Podcast. When you get started on a story, do you tend to plot it out and plan out in detail or do you just kind of go with it and let it happen i am very much a plot out um i say that like as a writer i am very scared of uh scene one and so i do absolutely everything in my power to write everything else that i can before i have to start writing scene one um which yeah my my supervisor on my my phd uh definitely has some words to say about i think um but yeah i i tend to write like character profiles and write out different like scenarios and start sort of like structuring pieces and then i start thinking about like oh okay this is what i want the central action to be and then like i'll, I'll think of like a whole yeah, plot framework and sometimes even get down to like scene by scene, you know, um, summary sort of things of what's going to happen in this scene before I write it. Like I'm very, very much a pre-planner. For Apocalypse Zones, which was a five episode show, um, I wrote down, uh, like I think I wrote the a full arc story of what I kind of wanted it to be. Like I sort of knew what the beginning and the end were coming in. I wrote episode one fairly early and then I wrote like full <laughs> like uh synopses basically um draft synopses of episode two three four and five and then worked on those synopses for a while before I started actually writing the episodes like I, I sort of fiddled with it and then the thing is once you start writing the episodes you often change a whole lot of it anyway just because it, it comes out and you're like oh here's a here's another idea um so I'm not necessarily bound by the stuff that I've pre-planned but I, I don't know it feels very safe to write to a pre-plan to me, it feels like that's a, it's like, yeah, constructing your safety net before you jump out on the tightrope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Otherwise I feel like I'm kind of flailing around, like mixing my metaphors here, but like, I feel like um, if I just sort of start writing, it's useful for helping to clear my brain. Like I do that as like a free writing exercise sometimes. And sometimes I'll use some of that stuff later on, but I don't feel like it goes anywhere necessarily. If you're just r- transcribing the voices, you know, like uh, of two people chatting or whatever, it can feel really meandering or like it doesn't necessarily need to serve the purpose that I want it to serve for the story or like develop the character characteristics or reveal anything. It can sometimes just feel like treading water. Um, And so that's why I I kind of tend to avoid that. So I have found that trying to plot out the the whole of everything that's going to happen is an exercise in futility. Um, (laughs) So Usually what I'll end up doing um, is I will write a very, very vague outline. Uh, And so I'll list out – so for, say, an audio drama, I'll write, okay, uh, Primordial Deep Season 2, we're going to have eight episodes, not including the prologue and the epilogue. Uh, And then I will list, like, a bare-bones sentence about what – uh, happens in each episode so that I know the general through line 
of which monsters are going where, who's having what loose, loose character arc, uh, and just kind of following the flow of the overall season. Uh, and then I put together a playlist and I listen to a bunch of music that reminds me of the characters and I sit and sort of dream up the scenarios in my head and I let it live in my head until it's really, really vivid. Mm. Um, and then I put it to the page. And there's something really fascinating because I've done this several times now and every time I put it to the page, no matter how clearly thought out I, I think that I have something, there is always something brand new or surprising that takes the story in a brand new direction or opens up these deeper, like wider vistas of a character for me. Um, so I try to keep my outlines as, as loose as humanly possible uh, because you never know what's actually going to happen when you're sitting down to write. Uh, something in the morning may spark a brand new idea for an episode that you're not going to write, you know, for a couple of weeks, so it has to germinate. Or you might suddenly be sitting there and go, oh, actually, this entire episode doesn't work the way that I need it to. What am I going to do to fix it, change it? And you have to scrap it, start over with something brand new that just kind of sparks out of nowhere. I share this story so that people may learn from my mistake. <laughs> when I started Jar of Rebuke, I wrote four episodes and then decided, eh, I'll wing it. We'll keep going. And then I had to play catch up for like a year and a half of this next episode needs to be written and done and recorded by this date. And I originally I was releasing like two episodes a month. And so then I went to once a month and then I ran out because <laughs> I didn't take any breaks. Um, I just kept writing and kept writing and kept writing and kept writing. And then I, it's like, I knew where I wanted the story to go, but I hadn't really like planned it out. I hadn't like plotted it out. I hadn't written all the notes that I should have. And so then I wrote myself into a corner that you can kind of see in the most recent Jar of Rebuke episodes. And then the series had to pause because I like did a reveal like two seasons early and was like, mm. okay, where the f am I going to go now? Mm. So uh, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, mm. <laughs> I think it is a great, great idea to at least have the entire season written and planned before you start to produce things. Um, mm -hmm. Now, as of season two of Jar of Rebuke moving forward, which yes, we are working on, um, it is we finish the entire season. And then we record, edit, get it all put together, upload the season. So while that season is airing, we can start to work on the next season. So I have a show Bible um, mm -hmm. for every single show that I do. And every single time that we do a new season, um, me, in the writer's room, me, Lucy, and then whoever we have on as our guest writer that season, we will sit down, um, and we will take all of the plot beats that we know need to happen that season. Mm. And we will put them into like a big Google doc. And then we will decide which important plot beat or character arc beat goes into which episode. And then we will build an episode around that and have the plot beats stuff outlined for that episode. Um, Lucy does it differently. Lucy Lucy Brown, my co-writer for Where the Stars Fell um, from season two onward. Um, I like to make an outline because then it makes it easier for me to just know what's going to happen in each scene and focus on the dialogue. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that it's very helpful to have that because it makes writer's block less likely to happen. And it means that when I sort of get into that hyper-focused state of I'm just writing and writing and writing and writing, I can write it all the way to the part where I just don't know what someone should say next. And it also means that when I start a conversation between two characters, I know what needs to happen in that conversation. I know what point needs to be reached in terms of where the story is going or where their arcs are going. And I could kind of work backwards from there to think, Mm -hmm. okay, what does this person need to say to get to this beat, to this beat, to this beat? So I can kind of do the maze backwards. Yeah, that's really interesting that you put off uh, writing scene one with because yeah. I'm the exact opposite. I, I write like <laughs> I write scene one and usually several scenes after, and then eventually kind of think I should make an outline for this. You know, um, mm. I'm I'm more, I'm more scared of the middle of the story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's um different. There's different ways to do it. Like I think most people I know that start from like just I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to keep writing and I'm going to work out the end while I'm on you know like I'm going to mm-hmm. <laughs> keep the yeah. car, keep the car driving and I'm going to work out the destination at the end. Um, I think generally like there's a lot more like the drafts get super big because then you have to cut it down and find the things. Yeah. Whereas my yeah. drafts tend to be quite like much shorter because I've done all of this stuff first i've got the screeds of ridiculous extra material i'm never going to use but it's basically all tricking myself to (laughs) that i haven't started so (laughs) then my actual draft is like shorter because i haven't got like screeds of material to to trick from yeah you don't have to kill as many darlings because you killed them all first (laughs) yeah got it got (laughs) it out of the way beforehand yeah I'm just thinking of um, the creator special you wrote for um, the Apollo Showcase uh, last oh, year. Oh, Paragon. Yeah, yeah, which I really, really enjoyed. And, you know, it for those who haven't listened, it's like an hour plus long audio drama, um, like standalone thing that, at least to me, felt very, like, well-structured and moved at, a, like, a really good pace and, like, felt like it was, like, intricately planned out. But uh, I... Uh, it, it, so it was, and it wasn't. That was the one that almost killed me and almost killed Julia. I, oh God. I'm sorry, Julia. I said it to you yesterday when we were having dinner. I'll say it again now. I'll say it forever. I'm so sorry. I, (laughs) I knew just what I wanted Paragon to be. Um, and so much of it had to end up. Uh, on the cutting room floor. Oh no! Not not. Uh, I mean, even before, like, like during the scripting process, a bunch of it ended up on the cutting room floor, which is fine because that means I get to save it for later in case we ever pick that up <laughs> and expand it. Ooh. Um, which I have been thinking about often because I am a little bit obsessed with the bone hounds. It's <laughs> fine again. I'm so sorry, Julia. Um. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that was one where um, I knew exactly what I wanted the story to be, and we had a very long time to work on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't do well when I'm given a grand space of time mm. to work on a thing. <laughs> I yeah. wrote the entire. I think the script is something like eighty pages long. I wrote the whole thing in three days uh, because. I I gave myself such a long time to write it. I already had it cast in my head. I knew exactly who I wanted for every single role. So I was like writing it with their character voices in mind. And all of a sudden I looked at the calendar and I went, girl, if you don't have this by Friday, 
no one's going to have time to record, and Julia's not going to have time to sound design this thing. So I sat down, and I was like, okay, we're writing this in three days, and I did, and I sent it out, and I... I'm really proud of what we made. And also, <laughs> it almost killed our entire cast and crew. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the guilt. Oh, I think about that one, and I'm like, that that is an incredible product. And also, I can never do anything like that to my cast and crew ever again. <laughs> this is something that I have learned from my amazing audience base. People will be patient with you if you mm -hmm. have to take a break, if you have to stop, if you have to have, because I was so terrified that if, you know, if we went too long in between seasons that I was going to lose my listener base. So I refused because, you know, I had that algorithm mm -hmm. kind of thought and then I burnt myself out, yeah. which I'm still recovering from like two years later. <laughs> As of now, I will write the entire season, at least not the whole series, unless I only plan it to be one season, and then start to work on it. Because that saves you a lot of heartache, a lot of time. It lets you more smooth, especially because I write mysteries. I'm a huge murder mystery whodunit. Like one of my first books of Sherlock Holmes, like that that's my bread and butter. And to make a good mystery, you have to foreshadow. You have to put these clues in. And yeah. that has to be planned. Mm-hmm. Because if not, then your mystery will probably not make sense in the end. And so that was one of the things that made me pull the reins and go, I need to stop because this mystery is starting to get off the rails and we aren't going to have a satisfying ending if we keep in this direction. I used to write and just kind of play catch up and follow wherever the breeze was going, uh, but now that that burned me. Um, I have learned the importance of planning, pre-writing, taking your time, and then tackling it when it's ready. Yeah, I think there's so many different things in writing. It's the same with like what sort of methods you use, whether you're like a free writer or you're a total over planner structurer. Like I think you can, you can learn a lot from both of those systems and there's nothing that's inherently wrong. But I mm -hmm. think whenever I find myself finding something that, that I kind of hit a wall against or like, oh, this is a thing that's a bit harder for me. I feel like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of a challenge that I kind of want to push myself to do more. Mm. And I kind of, in reflecting on my practice, I start noticing on like, oh, this is a thing that I tend to do quite a lot. Or like, this is a thing that I, sort of a pattern that I've kind of fallen into and it feels easy. Um, and I think sometimes, yeah, you want, you want writing to feel easy, but you also don't want it to feel repetitively easy. You know, you don't mm. want it to feel like you're just repeating yourself. Um, and so I'm kind of always trying to push myself to do something different or something that feels a bit more scary. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
my big thesis with Where the Stars Fell is to let characters, specifically our two disabled protagonists, do the cool thing. Because I think that so much of representation is focused on sometimes education and then also sometimes like just letting us be seen as people Mm -hmm. that it forgets that no marginalized people do deserve those kinds of cheesy power fantasies like getting to have a giant sword and slay demons (laughs) and get the girl but never stop being someone with you know chronic pain and chronic fatigue who's an ambulatory cane user in the case of lucy i think that there is always a way to show off those those fun wish fulfillment moments without making these characters, you know, have to forget their marginalized identities for the sake of that moment. Mm. Right. And it tells a kind of story that's brand new, too, because there's like specific obstacles that come with that or specific things that they have to think through in the course of fulfilling their mission. And that's like, that's that's good storytelling. Yeah. When I was... um, starting to write combat sequences for Lucy, something that Mm. I had to sit down and figure out is, okay, how is this person that does not always need to use her cane, but in a combat situation would very quickly get to a point where she cannot put a lot of weight on her leg without being in pain, balance? And the answer to that question is, Lucy needs to have her wings out to do combat. But also those wings need to be kept a secret to people who aren't in the know. So that becomes sort of a risk-reward factor of how do we get her into situations writing-wise where maybe she's not wearing the binder that she uses to hide her wings or where she can have them out but isn't, you know, showing them to people who shouldn't really be seeing that. And we come up with a really interesting way in season three um, to be able to make that transition from hiding to having them out to having them hidden again a little bit smoother for the sake of mm. sound design. Mm. Yeah. And, and that is another point. You have to do all of this without visuals. Yeah. <laughs> I've thrown a lot of towels around in front of a microphone. <laughs> oh, I bet. Oh, that's wonderful. But it's a puzzle and it's an interesting puzzle. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that's way more interesting than, you know, flawless protagonists who never, you know, never have to struggle to defeat or or to get through a situation. No, it's built in conflict, baby. One of the things with Jar Rebuke was that, uh, and I, I, I feel like this might be a thing that the audience can pick up on listening to it. The reason it's in an audio journal, like a diary format, is because this is supposed to be like Jared's story, right? Mm. And Jared's story is very a kind of like a fantastical retelling of things I went through because, you know, you write what you know. Um, And that has been such like a pride and joy for people to say like, wow, Jared is so relatable. Like, look at this fucking mess. Like, I I, I love this (laughs) Blorbo. So I learned what Blorbo meant when someone called Jared their Blorbo. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds affectionate. So thank you. Um, (laughs) But it was just this thing of like not being alone. You know, where it's like Jared is sitting there alone in his house or whatever, recording these journals and for other people to listen to it and go like, wow, I I feel that. Um, And with that said, another reason I had to take a break is uh, 
I got a new therapist and started working through things and things that I was putting into the series that I was like, hold on, I think I need to work through this first. Um, so, yeah. but I, I say this affectionately and unlike Jared, my therapist is amazing. Um, but I am waiting for my therapist to tell me when she thinks that um, uh. I'm ready to start putting this out into the world again. Mm, yeah, that's smart. I have heard people say, like, share your scars and not your wounds. So it sounds mm -hmm. like that's where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought they were more healed, to mm. be honest. Yeah. Um, like, Dr. Todd Carmen was based off of a boss that I was actively working under at the time. Um, um, I'm, I'm yeah. not saying the boss's actual name, but anyone who worked with me at the same job that I had in 2020 knows how similar Todd Carmen is to the boss that I had. Um, mm. I was like, okay... I don't think I'm going to be able to write Todd well until I emotionally process what this like actual Todd did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's been worked on. So like, that's fine. But then the whole like personal identity and figuring stuff out after a childhood you can't remember and stuff like that. I'm like, ah, we're going to we're going to heal these and then yeah. come back. I'm always trying to push myself to be less structurally focused in some ways because like it's a good thing it's a good system but it's also like I, I want I feel like there's a lot of like really great freedom and exploration that you get from doing more free writing stuff and so I've been really trying to push myself lately in my practice to do more free writing and more kind of like it doesn't matter we're not going to use any of this just write for <laughs> half an hour fill this page see what happens yeah like improv yeah. writing yeah exactly sometimes my biggest struggle as a writer is finding a voice that's not pastiche like I think because I've often worked in genre um mm. it's really easy to lean on like I'm a very good kind of mimic uh, mm. I think that's one of my skill sets is that it's I'm, I find it really easy to sort of fall into an existing voice of um you know a particular form like mm. I've done quite a bit of murder mystery I've done like some sort of you know uh uh, copies of sort of in, in the style of verbatim transcript stuff um, or I've sometimes written plays where I'm like I've read this a lot from this particular writer and they've really inspired me and so I'm going to write a play that is, feels inspired by their work but then I feel like sometimes it's hardest to fall out of the pattern of just mimicking what somebody else mm. has done or, or pastiching a genre or a particular kind of type of voice. Um, and I think it feels a lot safer to do pastiche. Like I think for me, it feels very low stakes mm. um, compared to something that has to feel a little bit less reliant on genre or on uh, existing form. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's something that I don't necessarily struggle with, but I, I, I note as a, as a little, um, as a little crutch that I lean on sometimes is uh, kind of mimicking other things as opposed to being like, okay, what's, you know, how can I, how can I borrow from everybody? Because everybody borrows from influences. I think it's impossible to write without borrowing from influences, but without it becoming a pastiche of something else. One of the, one of the current struggles that I'm dealing with as a writer is having to grapple with the fact that different writing mediums, uh, require different things from mm. you so that like storytelling at its core is is communication and is is trying to get an idea across in in the best possible way that you can in the way that you know evokes the kinds of feelings that you want to evoke in your audience um and writing an audio drama script is a very very different medium than sitting down and trying to write a novel which is what i'm mm -hmm. currently 
trying to do. Uh, which is also, you know, very, very different from writing a script for television. It's different from writing fan fiction. It's it, every single different medium requires different things from you. Um, and so it's it's grappling with the idea that I know that I'm a writer. I know that I know how to tell stories, but trying to transfer the skills that I've learned in audio drama into writing something like a novel uh, mm. and also just like the time factor of sitting down every single day <laughs> for like weeks and weeks on end when I'm like, but I could write a 20 page script in a day if I needed to. <laughs> and then have it be made and be done and be out there. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't yep. can't do that with a novel is, is what I'm learning is novels don't work like that. Uh, they're long. But yeah, it's 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 just trying to shift uh, with the tides of whatever it is that you're actively working on, um, and being patient with myself as I'm relearning how to be a different kind of writer. This is a side question, but how have you figured out which medium certain stories of yours belong in? Because I am currently locked in a years-long struggle with a story of mine that refuses to clearly be any one thing. Like, do you have any tips for figuring out where it belongs? I usually find out by doing. I find out by sitting down and if if I have sort of an inkling that maybe it's leaning a little bit more towards just straight prose, I'll try to type a couple of pages and see how that feels. If it's the right voice. Because with every project, you know, you're just trying to find what the voice is and, and who the characters are. Sometimes sitting down and opening uh, something that I think is going to be a novel and the words start coming out in a monologue, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I actually need to switch over to, you know, the script writing app mm. that I have on my computer and start putting it in there. And honestly, sometimes it will work as both. I don't necessarily think that you have to figure out exactly what it needs to be because one that's part of what the editing process is um right. if one you know feels a little easier for you to write write the first chapter write mm -hmm. the first script and then let it sit and see how that sits with you um how you're seeing the world also uh like inside your head uh, and where it lives inside your heart also tends to help me as well. If I'm if I'm seeing it more visually, that usually for me means that uh, it's it's going to be some form of a script because I actually write my scripts the way you would write a play or a, or a TV show um, mm. because I, I feel it's easier to sort of quote unquote move the camera around inside yeah. my own head and follow the characters that way. I would say the biggest mistake is something that I learned when I was writing Inkworm. Um, mm. I did not have a script editor for basically that whole show. And you can tell. You can absolutely tell. Not enough darlings were killed. Some stuff just doesn't make sense. I forgot some things. And it taught me the importance of always, always, always putting a second or third pair of eyes on a thing. Because you have one brain, you have one life experience, and you also have one way of consuming art. And you need people who think differently, who have lived differently, and who create differently than you to look at those things and give you potential audience reactions and also to just catch the stuff that you miss. 
We are, we are not omnipotent. I have written scripts where I have completely forgot about a thing that we established like two seasons ago that we really should include there or that really need would need to be touched on if we're going to go in that direction. And I'm always so, so grateful when I get scripts back that have like a ton of red ink because that means that those are all of the things that I definitely missed that have now been caught and I don't have to worry about screwing them up anymore. I get so, so anxious when I give stuff for people to read and I never get any notes or critique feedback because that means, okay, that means some of the things that I have definitely missed because I've definitely missed things you also missed and I need to find another person to tell me what I did wrong. And I think it's also important to have that editor be someone who is not a part of the core writing team. Um, like for mm -hmm. season three, the writer's room was me, Lucy. Um, we had a guest episode written by Lauren Grace Thompson, but then we had a separate script editor, Brad Colebrook, um, who did not write any of the episodes, who just did script edits. And I am a really big proponent of that because your characters and your world and your plot live inside your head rent-free all of the time. Mm -hmm. So you are just going to naturally forget to communicate things in scripts because you're thinking, oh, well, I already know this. But the audience doesn't. The people who haven't been thinking about this world and this characters in a canon sense don't know that because they don't live in the creator's head. So I always like to get somebody who isn't a writer and who isn't constantly thinking about this show to look at these scripts because they're going to tell me what the actual audience reaction to the things that I put in that script will be. You know, as someone who lived almost all their life wanting to be an artist, but in communities and circles that did not encourage that, now being an artist and having people like it's it. I don't say this lightly. It's almost like a drug. You 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 need like obsessively check it. You obsessively need that feedback. I think that really hindered my relationship with my own project because mm -hmm. it didn't feel like Jared's story anymore. It didn't feel like my story anymore. It felt right, like right. some podcast that I was writing for. Mm. So while again, there's nothing wrong. And also if you're a listener of Driver Buchan, have reached out to me and messaged me, don't feel bad about it. Like, I appreciate that. Uh, and I welcome that. It's There's a difference when you go into audience spaces versus them going, hey, I love your show. I hope you're having a good day. Yeah, it's if you are a creator, don't immerse yourself into the fan spaces that will impact how you make your projects. Yeah. Um, you may feel the need to incorporate their suggestions. You may feel the need to incorporate things. Um, actually, Brent Spiner, who, if to anyone who doesn't know, played Data in Star Trek Next Generation, um, said it really well that he is very glad that he didn't know that people viewed Data as an autistic like figurehead because he felt he feels he may have pressured the writing team to like make that a thing. And he's not autistic. And so it's this thing of he's like, I don't know if I would have damaged that. Mm. I don't know if I would have ruined that. And as an autistic person who loves androids for very autistic reasons, like I am so glad that data is just the way that he is. So listen, if if Brent Spiner says that this little this little tidbit helped him, <laughs> I'll give it I'll I'll give it some consideration. Um so yeah. Uh, plan your stuff, don't rush it, and also let your audience have their space. 
don't feel obligated to contribute to that space when you are already contributing to the content that is building that space in the first place. Part of me feels like I don't work on my stuff enough like some because I do so much pre-planning it takes so long to get to draft one I'll get to probably draft three and then at that point like I think I just there's a bit of a laziness (laughs) I'm just like I'm not doing this anymore come on like (laughs) I've thought about this enough oh yeah like I I don't return to my old stuff that much at all like um especially because as a producer slash writer like I'm producing my own work and like I think all of my plays except for there's one which has been sort of it's a written for a solo actor and he tours around and does it all the time um but everything else has had like one production basically because I just I'm like well we've done it now like someone else can (laughs) I don't want to do this again like I just I get bored (laughs) um which is a really bad like that doesn't that doesn't really say anything about the writing of it but like I think that might be the most honest truth is that at a certain point I get kind of bored with it and I'm like well it is what it is (laughs) (laughs) and I just sent it out it's out in the Um, world I'm done with it stop thinking yeah (laughs) I I I get that too as writer producer as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean like I think it's also I tend to have workshops um at the end stage as well because obviously working with them um, in, in theater, that's a really, really useful step. Um, and I find mm. that, yeah, I've learned how to use workshops, I think, really well over the course of, you know, 10 years of writing is, um, yeah, that you you work at how to use workshop feedback because workshop feedback isn't necessarily good, but the process of <laughs> workshopping is really good. <laughs> like there's more stuff that you probably discover just working with the actors, seeing what they, what feels right in their mouths, like, you know, when it's a musical, there's a lot of musical stuff that you'll discover um, through that process. Um, and then you'll get feedback at the the reading. And unfortunately, a lot of the feedback is just like, loved it. Great. Mm. <laughs> You're like, cool, that doesn't help me at all. Or somebody will get stuck on like a really dumb detail that you're like, no, nah, I don't, you know. But I always think it's really interesting when you get negative feedback Um my advice, I guess, is like to treat negative feedback as an acknowledgement of a symptom, uh, not of a disease. So mm-hmm. they've noticed something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it, um, yeah, is that their, their suggestions are correct. Like they probably mm-hmm. haven't diagnosed the problem correctly, but they've noticed something, and that's definitely true. Like if they've got, particularly if you've got multiple people saying like, "Oh, it felt a bit slow," or like you know, this um, scene in the middle there, like I didn't know what it was doing or like I have this character, I didn't find them very likable. If you're supposed to be, if your response is like, well, that character's not supposed to be likable, that's fine. But you have to think about like, okay, but why do these people not realize that? Like there's clearly something else going Mm. on here that you need to Mm -hmm. to sort of play with in the script. Um, So I do find workshops are a really good process. Generally it's between two and three, draft two and draft three um, or draft three and draft four if I'm, got a bit more time (laughs) and then um yeah generally i'll i'll fix it up after one of those and then i'll be like well there we go (laughs) i think that so much of art making is making mistakes and not Mm -hmm. only is it the best way to learn but it's also you know how oh, oh there's this great episode of um this podcast that i listened to uh, called A Beautiful Anarchy by uh, David Duchemin, or Duchemin, rather. Um, uh, and there's an episode called Mistakes and Mutations. And it's talking about how, you know, you're never really going to get to the next thing that you are creating unless you are constantly making mistakes. Mm. Um, and how that is how your art 
mutates and changes and becomes what it's meant to be uh, is through all of those mistakes that you make. Jordan, it has been such a pleasure talking with you tonight. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it's been great hearing your, all of your insight. Um, this has just been a blast. Take care of yourself, everyone. We'll see you soon. I'm Van Winkle. And I'm Virginia. And you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. We have to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstruction but on this floor beyonce michael jordan Issa ray thank you for coming <laughs> come and join us on life writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life life writing is available wherever you get your podcasts